Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, Episode 74, House of Cards. In episode 73, Exterminate, Annihilate, Destroy, you listened to part two of my lengthy discussion with fellow annihilationists and listeners Ronnie Demler and Joey Deere, having listened to part one in episode 72, Drag Me to Hell. Without any monologue or promo, we'll jump right into this third and final hour of our discussion, but first let me remind you where we left off at the end of last episode. We discussed the traditionalists' response to the annihilationist case from bestowed immortality, and then we talked about Matthew 10.28 and how it's never sufficiently addressed by traditionalists, nor does their attempt to pit Luke's parallel account against it work in their favor. We discussed 2 Peter 2.12's likening the destruction of the wicked to the destruction of brute beasts. We discussed Hebrews 10.27's consuming fire. And we discussed whether or not annihilationism faces a challenge if the parable of Lazarus and the rich man is to be taken as depicting conscious punishing in the intermediate state. We discussed Hiram Diaz's case that annihilationism has profound soteriological implications, including whether final punishment is ultimately suffering or ultimately death, and whether the demon's expectation of torment supports the eternal torment view of hell. Finally, we talked about traditionalism's understanding of death and Hades being thrown into the lake of fire, and what it means to be dead, speaking of living people in the present tense. That's where we left off last episode, and so let's dive into this third and final hour of our discussion, where we respond to some of the arguments made in defense of the traditional view of hell following my debate with Hiram. And so we'll be blowing down the house of cards that is the case for eternal torment. Let's go ahead and move on now to uh, the post-debate um, conversations that, that have taken place. Um, I, some of those you guys were privy to because they were on the, the Apologetics Facebook page. Other ones I've sort of copied and pasted for you guys because they were on Hiram's page. Um, the, first, the first thing I want to talk about was uh, Hiram has, had argued that it, on Facebook that eternal death precludes any kind of non-existence that follows. And his argument is that the Bible indicates that the punishment of the wicked will be eternal death. That's a phrase he uses. But something which no longer exists cannot be said to be dead or anything else. Um, Joey, what, what do you make of this? Do, does the Bible say that the fate of the wicked is eternal death in the sense it requires their ongoing existence so they can be spoken of as being dead or anything else? No, of course not. I mean, first off, in the sense, this gets back to the whole issue of what do we mean when we speak of existence and so forth. Like, you take a corpse, you know, a corpse, as long as it's a corpse, is dead. You know, but it it's a corpse. It still exists, in that it's there, but you can't torment it or do anything to it. And secondly, the Bible, it never actually speaks of, you know, quote, eternal death. You know, I think, I think what he might have in mind is the idea of eternal, like, killing as if the process of killing is going on because you obviously have to be alive and existent and conscious in order for death to be inflicted. But, like, you know, once a dead body is dead, but, it's it, even though it exists as an entity, it's not tormentable. So even if that were the case, uh, it wouldn't. It would be what we're arguing. 
I understand, but but you know, to be fair to his argument, as bad as I think it is, and I'll explain why in a moment. Um, I, that, I don't think that's really his point because he he admitted that even if I mean we believe that the that if if the, if the wicked are rendered corpses, they're going to decay away quickly or or be burned up or what have you. So though even the corpses won't exist anymore. Uh, his point is that if the Bible says that the punishment of the wicked will be eternal death, quote-unquote, then at any given time throughout eternity, in order to be able to be described as being dead, they have to exist, because something that doesn't exist can't be even said to be dead. Okay? Um, so that's that's his argument. And, and I have a response, but, I mean, Ronnie, turning to you, do, what do you think of this argument? Do you, what, what would your response be? Yeah, I actually, I think I showed you, I had a very similar interaction with uh, somebody on a certain blog uh, we were going back and forth in the comments, and they, yeah, they made the exact same or very similar argument, which I, I found uh, ridiculous. Um, and I don't want to steal your thunder with your, you know, empirical poll that you did. <laughs> well, I'll explain that in a second, but you go ahead. But I mean, I made the point to him. I said, you know, let's just imagine that you had a a dog that died. I don't know, maybe a year ago or something. So that dog is dust, right? That dog is gone and. I don't think you know, I don't think any Christian believes that dogs have souls that live in some intermediate state. Maybe some do. But if your friend said, "Hey, how's your dog?" and and you said, "Well, my dog is dead." No one in a million years would ever say, "Well, that's actually not true." You know, because in order to be dead, you have to exist and you know, your dog is dust, you know, your dog no longer exists. I mean, that's ridiculous. No one would ever say that. Uh I mean, and also and I've I've asked friends about this who are not uh conditionalists. I said, um, let's just say, let's say, you know, you were dead for a day, like literally dead. And, and let's assume an, an atheistic universe, okay, there, or let's, you know, a monist universe or something where there's no, nothing that lives on in the afterlife. <laughs> so let's say you were dead for, for an hour or something and then you were resuscitated. Would it be proper to say that you were dead for an hour? And invariably the response I get is yes, that would, you know, be completely proper and, and correct. I said, okay, well, what if it was a day? Would it be proper to say you were dead for a day? And they say yes. I said, okay, so you know, take it from there. Could you say that you were dead for a year and then resuscitated? And they would say yes. I said, okay, so what would be the difference if you said that a person will be dead forever? Right? It, it does not imply their endless existence. So that's just another way of making the same point. And, and I'm sure you have more to say to that with, with the poll you gave. Yeah, I'll get to this poll. You know, what, what struck me as, as he was making this argument was that he, he's treating this language as if it's a, um, logical syllogism. As if, or, as if the word dead is being used in a very strictly scientific or logical sense in the scripture when the scripture is written in language, language that humans use. And I, and I argued with him that when, when we as human beings say that somebody is dead, we in no way, shape, or form intend to communicate whether or not the person that we just said is dead still exists. It's just not part of our point. In fact, a better way, I think when we say somebody's dead, what we mean, what we mean is that they died and they don't live anymore. And so he, he disagreed. Or he, he said that he, he thought that I was, um, uh, what, he, he basically questioned whether or not this is in fact how humans spoke, which took me aback because it seems to me to be utterly obvious. But because, because he seemed to doubt that that's the way humans speak, um, I conducted a little poll and, you know, I'll just, for all of you listening who answered that poll, thank you because I think the answers are 100%, literally 100% in favor of what I've argued. Here's the poll. The question that the first question I asked people was, is your great, 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 great grandparent dead? And invariably they all said yes. 
The second question I answer, asked is, if you answered yes, do you believe that ancestor has a soul that is living somewhere in heaven or somewhere else? Uh, you know, monists and atheists said no. Dualists said uh, yes. And those of us who are on the fence said, I don't know. Uh, the question three is, if you answered yes to number two, is the reason that you answered yes to number one because you consciously think about their ongoing existence of his life or her soul? And except for maybe two people, everybody said no. The, the point being that when they said that their ancestor was dead, it wasn't because they thought they exist right now somewhere. And then the last question is, if you answered yes to uh, number three, if you became an atheist and no longer believed your ancestor's soul is conscious somewhere, would you still answer yes to number one? And they all said Yes, including the atheists I spoke to. So the point that I'm getting at is I think that the, granted, this was a limited poll. Uh, I am by no means a statistician or a pollster, but it seems to me to be pretty strong evidence that when we speak about people being dead, we in no way, shape, or form intend to communicate anything about their ongoing existence. And so therefore, it seems to me that Hiram's entire argument from eternal death uh, falls apart. I mean, Joey, would you agree? Yeah, I mean, that's, I would agree, you know, on everything you all said. I would also add this one thing. I don't, as far as I know, the Bible never says, you know, specifically that, you know, the lost are dead for eternity. You know, I think it says, it says they suffer death. No, let's, you know, no, you're, you're completely right. Everything you guys already said already proves the point. But I also want to say that, let's just say that, you know, we take the example of a dead body. And after a few years, you know, it decays into nothing. And you might say, well, the body's not dead anymore because it's gone. Well, if that's the case, then we would just say that death leads to a greater destruction or something like that, which I think would be perfectly fine. Yeah, I, I think you're right. The Bible does not ever explicitly say eternal death. I mean, you know, eternal life is often contrasted with death. And what Hiram tries to argue is that that logically leads to the punishment for the wicked being eternal death. Of course, that's not the case at all. And so, like you said, they can enter into death. Uh, and then be destroyed or, or, you know, eventually be destroyed or what have you. The, the suggestion that, that the death is, on, is, is forever and therefore requires their ongoing existence just doesn't make any sense. Um. Yeah, I, r- real quick, I mean, I, I would wonder if, if what Hiram or someone else like him would, would have to say if we asked him. So, uh, what do you think would be appropriate language to describe, you know, a death that lasts forever in the way that we mean? I wonder what they would say if we put them on the spot. They would be, they would cease to exist forever and never be, and never be able to be predicated upon again. <laughs> I think that's, I think that's what they would say. I'm sorry, I'm making fun of, you know, the insistence of the use of predicated and stuff. Anyway, but you're right. There, it goes back to what we said earlier. No language is ever going to be strong enough, and that's one of the things that's so frustrating. Um, now, the next thing that I wanted to talk about that came after the debate was uh, Hiram's post on grassroots apologetics, and I'll include a link to this in the show notes, about Malachi and Matthew. Um, and in it, uh, he basically argues that Malachi 4, 1 and 6 and Matthew 3, 11 and 12 um, can't be used in support of annihilation. In fact, you know, quite the contrary. Uh, I mean, Joey, let's turn to you first because it seemed like you had some things that you wanted to say about this this article. Do you think that that Hiram makes it all a compelling case that Malachi four one six and Matthew three eleven to twelve uh, are illegitimately used by us to support our contention? I wouldn't say so because for, there's a number. For, first off, he makes you know what in a sense is you know a long linear you know piece by piece argument but the problem is if any piece in that argument doesn't hold up the whole argument fails and i think it you know for example 
uh, I'm, you know, I'm a partial preterist, and I, I know, you know, you and Dee Dee Warren hate people saying partial, but yeah, I'm, I'm just afraid right when now. I, and it's just, when I'm out and about, if I say just preterist, I think some people associate that with hyper-preterism, because, you know, like, I've read books, and they speak of preterism, like, they don't distinguish between the two, because they don't know any better. Right, I know. But, yeah, anyway, so, even though I am, you know, a preterist, I don't necessarily think these passages in the first place are speaking of the uh, fall of Jerusalem. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't make a very good case that that's even the case with these passages. Um, definitely not with Malachi. And I know that would involve getting a lot deeper, but uh, yeah, I think if you read, my position is if you read, you know, chapter three of Malachi and, you know, all the things God's saying about how there's going to become a day where the righteous will be, you know, distinguished from the unrighteous and how he has a scroll with everybody's names on it who serve him. Like, and then you go to the fact that when this happens, all this, you know, there's burning up and so forth. I think that you have a much better case making that at least that's speaking at the end of the world. But let's just say that he's right about that these are just speaking of uh, the fall of Jerusalem. Now, in a sense, he does make it would make a decent point that the language of you know of things being burned up in unquenchable fire doesn't necessarily speak of people's annihilation and so forth. Because he'd make the point that, you know, not all these people died and so forth, and it was really about being the Jerusalem being cut off from God and all that. He'd make a good point that the languages have to mean annihilation, but he then takes it much further in his article and basically saying, since the language speaking of an earthly judgment doesn't mean annihilation, then this thing, which is speaking of an earthly judgment, means eternal torment's true. Like, that's that's pretty much what he's saying there, which I don't think is consistent given the fact that his whole argument leading up to that is this is not speaking of the end of days. This These passages <laughs> are speaking of Jerusalem. It's like, okay, then how do they speak of eternal torment in the first place? I think that's the big failure, even if he proves everything up to that point. Yeah, and you know, the the, the thing that, and I'll, I'm going to have you chime in in a second, Ronnie, if you have anything to say. Uh, the, the thing that strikes me as well is he... Touches on Matthew 3, 1 to 12. It seems to me that that's a big part of his argument here. But Matthew 3, 12 is, or Matthew 3, 1 to 12 is not the only, uh, place in which Jesus harkens back, uh, to Malachi. I mean, in Matthew 13, 42 and 50, in the parable of the tares, says that the, uh, just like, he says, in the analogy that the tares will be thrown into a furnace of fire, but he says just like the tares in that analogy, the wicked would be thrown into a furnace of fire. He says that there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, which is a phrase that he also uses in Matthew 22 and 25 in connection with outer darkness, as well as in Luke 13, where the wicked will see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob reclining at the table before being bound hand and foot and thrown out, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In other words, he, he seems to think that Matthew 3, 1 to 12 is the only place that is connected to Malachi, which doesn't seem to be to be the case at all, you know. Um, uh, Ronnie, do you have any thoughts on this? Oh, I have a number of thoughts. Uh, yeah, what you, you said is exactly right. First of all, you know, conditionalists, we don't need Matthew 3. Uh, there's plenty of other passages that make the exact same point and use the exact same language, even stronger language. Uh, you know, the parable you mentioned, Jesus actually interprets that. And so there's uh, not much room to uh, wiggle out of the explicit interpretation. Um, so we don't even necessarily need, uh, you know, Matthew 3. Um, if anything, what Hiram says ends up working against, uh, traditionalism. Because, so. because one of the, you know, favorite expressions of traditionalists is this expression of unquenchable fire, right? And they say, oh, 
Uh, we know what unquenchable means. It means fire that torments forever. But if you're going to point to this passage in Matthew 3 and say, well, that's actually not what it means, well, then there goes all those verses. And so, you know, you, you need to call up, uh, you know, Peterson and Morgan, all these traditional, and say, hey, actually, you guys, I just discovered uh, that unquenchable fire actually doesn't mean what you think it means. Uh, so there's that. There's also something else that bugged me a lot, and I'm going to mention it again later. But Hiram implies that, you know, uh, conditionalists appeal to this passage just because they're proof texting and they're ripping yeah. it out of the context and so on and so forth as if, you know, everyone else understands this, you know, clearly to be something about the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 and, you know, us, you know, us, you know, ideologues over here on the conditionalist end are just, you know, clinging to this passage. It's like, well, no, that's not true. The fact of the matter is that traditionally this passage has always been understood as uh, you know, uh, communicating something eschatologically, something about basically final judgment. And it still is by traditionalists. Traditionalists often mention this passage. Uh, Christopher Morgan in Hell Under Fire, he says, you know, regarding this passage, that the wicked will be burned with unquenchable fire. And he quotes Matthew 3.12. You know, Peterson does it elsewhere. Um, I Just for fun, I was looking it up. John Calvin takes the same interpretation. Now, Am I saying that because they said it, it's true? Of course not. You know, I don't want to commit a fallacy. Uh, so I'm obviously not saying that. The point is, we're not just being, you know, ad hoc here and, and, you know, proof texting. And, you know, this is a very common traditional, and I would say probably the majority interpretation. Now, of course, with maybe the popularity of preterism, people are starting to see, oh, maybe it doesn't mean that. And again, that's fine. That doesn't pose any threat at all to conditionalism. Again, if anything, it, it strengthens the case, or at least it weakens the case uh, for annihilation, or I'm sorry, at least it weakens the case for traditionalism. Yeah, definitely. I mean, just to add to your citations that you already gave, you know, while you were talking, I looked up um, Matthew 3.12 at studylight.org, and James Burton Kaufman connects... Uh, <laughs> Uh, Matthew three twelve with the final judgment. Um, so we aren't, we definitely aren't simply proof texting. We're understanding this in the traditional way that it's uh, understood, in the sense of referring to uh, the final judgment. And and like you said, it, the, this is if he wants to argue that this is what unquenchable fire does, great. <laughs> then that's what's going to happen to the wicked in, in the final judgment when they face the unquenchable fire. Right? I mean, so it definitely does seem to um, undermine their own case. Um, now, another pa another article that he wrote, um, returned to this prison sentences thing. And I think you asked me, Ronnie, earlier if we were going to come back to this because you had some comments. And, um, you know, in, in this article, he, he cleverly titles it. I like this, actually. It's funny. Is Matthew 5, 21 to 26 merely earthly legal advice? I, and then it's subtitled, Jesus was not an annihilationist. Now, we're going to come back to that in a second. But uh, I just want to point out that I had not, uh, this took me by surprise during the debate. Um, looking back at one or more of these passages, I'm not as convinced as I was during the debate that it was, as as uh, Hiram here puts it, nearly earthly legal advice. So I was kind of shooting from the cuff, and um, and so it, first of all, it's kind of funny that he would say that this is the annihilationist position, um, although he did put in parentheses with whom we dealt. Anyway, the point I'm making is just that I wasn't prepared to address this, and I'm open to the possibility that it's not, in fact, merely earthly legal advice. But we we did already talk about how even if it is, 
it doesn't pose any challenge to annihilationism. But Ronnie, you said you had some more, something more I think you wanted to say about this, this article. Is that right? Uh, yeah, you know, just a similar comment to, to what I just said about, um, how he, at, you know, Hiram acts as if, you know, we're just trying to explain away the obvious. As a matter of fact, uh, this is a direct quote Hiram says, referring to this passage, that quote, one can empathize with those who, wishing to defend their doctrine, would struggle to explain away this text, or to explain this text away. And then later on he says that to treat this passage as earthly advice is, quote, very obvious misinterpretation. Mm. Now, I just, like you, I, I found that amazing. I mean, I have not always been a conditionalist. Even when I was a traditionalist, I never thought that this passage had anything to do with future judgment so i'm not again i'm not just clinging to some crazy interpretation here and you know to make the same point that i made before you have a number of you know respected theologians who basically echo what we say uh, wayne grudem he's responding to a roman catholic apologist as some people might know this passage is often used in support of purgatory Hmm. because it might imply that you could get out of someplace after paying the last penny um, and look what Wayne Grudem says. He says, but surely there's no indication in context that this is a parable. Jesus is giving practical teaching about reconciliation of human <laughs> context and the avoidance of situations that naturally lead to anger and personal injury. John Gill says these words are not understood in an allegorical sense, as if the adversary was the justice of God demanding the payment of debts, you know, and, and so on and so forth. Um, John Calvin says this part is explained by some in a metaphorical sense. And what he's, who he's referring to, those Roman Catholics, uh, that the heavenly judge will act towards us with the utmost rigor so as to forgive us nothing. Uh, he says, but I view it more simply as an admonition that even among men, it is usually advantageous for us to come to an early agreement with adversaries because with quarrelsome persons, their obstinacy often costs them dear. So I'm agreeing with John Calvin, John Gill, and Grudem. Again, <laughs> our, is my view right because they agree with me? Well, no, of course not. They could be wrong and I could be wrong. But to act as if, to, or to allege, or, or I'm sorry, to a- accuse conditionalists of you know struggling to explain this text away because we're clinging to our doctrine and, and that we're making a very obvious misinterpretation, I just find uh, amazing that anyone could say something like that. Yeah, I've got to admit that uh, if if the interpretation that I came up with on the fly, having never looked at these passages in this context before, lines up with the giants Grudem, Gill, and Calvin, I think I did. I think I handled myself pretty well on the fly then, and I think that it's not quite as obvious as as Hiram thinks it is. And, and like you said, obviously Wayne Grudem, John Gill, and John Calvin, none of which are cal- uh, conditionalists. Uh, clearly, it's not simple proof texting. I mean, did you want to add anything on this, Joey? I mean, not really. Just, you know, as you said before, even even if it were, speaking of allegorically, which is how I had taken it before uh, this, it still wouldn't matter because, I mean, compared to the unmerciful servant, that this is nothing to our case. Like, you'd have to pay the last penny. It's like, all right, well, we all agree that, you you know, if you aren't forgiven by God, you owe the full debt of your sin. So, there. Yeah. Yeah, it's – this is what I tried to explain in my rebuttal is that uh, – um, there are things that we can take from this parable or from these passages, if that's what they are, that we can agree with traditionalists on. We can't pay off our debt. We all agree with that. But why that requires that we take these literalistically to refer to an uh, indefinite prison sentence is, is beyond me. Um, particularly, yeah, well, it, oh, I'm yeah, sorry. No, no, Chris. go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. 
It's okay. I was you just going to move finish. on. But no, you no, can finish go. and then I'll jump in. <laughs> no, I was I was going to go on. So I mean, you go ahead and share with you share with us your thought. Yeah, and, and one other thing, uh, you know, I'm taking a look here at Hiram's blog post, and you know, he he tells others that you know we need to take the text seriously, not just proof text and do exegesis. But it's interesting. At one point, he says this. He says. You know, that even though, you know, we are struggling to explain away this text, he says the text still stands. And it, it, this text teaches us the following. A, sin incurs an unpayable debt. B, imprisonment is the judgment due to those who are indebted to God because of their sin. And C, because the debt owed to God by sinners is infinite, and the criminal stay in prison is commensurate with the amount of debt the criminal owes, all who, all those who break the law are guilty of incurring an infinite debt. Uh, I'm sorry, all who break the law are guilty of incurring an infinite debt will spend an infinite amount of time in prison. Is that what this text teaches? <laughs> There's a lot being read into here. And I understand that you know, maybe he's bringing in premises from elsewhere in Scripture. But <laughs> as far as this text is concerned, it says nothing at all about infinite debt. And as a matter of fact, that's not an expression or I would say even a concept that you find in Scripture. Yes, we can be said to owe God a debt that we can't pay. That is not the same thing as an infinite debt. If, if you know, the concept of infinite debt makes any sense at all, and I've pressed a number of traditionalists on explaining exactly what they mean by that, and they, ne- they can never give me anything that makes, you know, m- much sense at all. You know, what is an infinite debt? Uh, so here's an example of, of a traditionalist. Uh, make an argument that's just not very careful at all, and he's smuggling in this concept of infinite debt when the text says nothing of the sort. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. Although, although I, I will say, like I said in my opening, that I don't particularly disagree with traditionalists on the idea of an infinite debt. Uh, I just happen to think that a death that is uh, the, from which one never rises <laughs> uh, qualifies for that. But yeah, you're you're right. It is, it is read into here. Presumably, he's exegeted other passages to demonstrate that, but that's just it. Those are other passages, and he makes no indication that that's the case here. Um, there is one more post that he wrote before we get to uh, one last post from, uh, not from Hiram, but also in the same ministry. Uh, th- this last one, that most recent one Hiram has written, Utter Destruction and Consumption, Allowing Context to Define the Key Terms, Part 1. Now, I mean, just to summarize his, his argument here, what he's saying is that... Um, is that in the, in the Old Testament, the Israelites were commanded uh, using language of utterly destroyed. Um, they were commanded to utterly destroy uh, people groups in, in, in the hills, uh, the Am- Amalekites or Anakites, what have you. And yet, as Paul Copan, whom he cites often in this post, has argued, they didn't utterly anni- annihilate them. Um, later on, after they were supposedly destroyed uh, from throughout the land, um, Nevertheless, Caleb later asked permission to drive them out. Now, his point, I think, is that this establishes that the precedent of the language of utter destruction is used to symbolically or or to metaphorically pronounce the completion or totality of God's judgment and not necessarily it being actual utter destruction. I mean, Joey, do you have any thoughts on on this blog post? Yeah, I mean, for starters, just looking at what he's saying, uh, here's one quote he's quoting from, uh, I think it's from the gentleman you mentioned. He's, you know, it says, Joshua's conventional, conventional warfare rhetoric was common in many ancient Near Eastern military accounts in the second, first millennia BC. So, 
talk, you know, we're talking about, you know, the importance of context and so forth. Well, here's an important aspect of context. Yeah, the Old Testament used that kind of language when referring to, you know, the earthly conquest of people groups because that was a common idiom of the day. That wasn't a common idiom in, for example, in the New Testament when speaking of individuals at judgment. Like, the context, the immediate context is, yeah, that's how they may have spoken in Near Eastern Old Testament time military conquest. <laughs> right. to, to take that and then say that therefore means since it was used in the Bible a few times in those specific contexts that then that must be that you know not only can be but must be how annihilation type language is used throughout the Bible. That is not you know that's taking it out of its context and not allowing context to define the key terms. Yeah, that's absolutely right. It, it strikes me. Now, granted, this, let, let's be fair. This is alleged to be part one of what presumably will be a multi-part argument, and so perhaps in the subsequent posts he'll explain how context and utter destruction language come into play. But but still, I mean, just on the surface of it, this passage or this, this blog post doesn't seem at all to allow context to define the key terms since he's not referring to the context in which the fate of the wicked is described in the final judgment. Um, but, but Ronnie, turning to you, I mean, that's, that's not the last of, uh, the last or the least of the problems with the argument that Hiram is trying to make from this, is it? Uh, no. I, even though I do think that that's probably the, the more important point, that even if we assume that everything he's saying, that everything Copen says is, is true, and, you know, none of us have really, have really had time to look into this with any depth. Uh, but even even if we assume all that's true, you can't just again <laughs> take this idea and import it or extrapolate it to every single other passage in Scripture that uses this type of language. You know, it's it's committing the same error that Hiram accuses us of making, mm -hmm. right? That we are you know not understanding that words and expressions are polysemous and so forth, um, or that we're committing the you know illegitimate excuse me, the illegitimate totality transfer. It's like, well, that's exactly what you're doing here, Hiram. Uh, we have to look at, you know, every passage that uses destructive language in its own context. You can't just assume because, well, somewhere it wasn't used absolutely literally, therefore it's never used absolutely literally or, or literally at all. Um, just another thing, a few other things that have come to mind, uh, you know, and, and this is fairly summary. Um, the fact is that we learn later on in Scripture that... Uh, the Israelites actually failed. They they did not um, f fully carry out God's command to utterly destroy. And so um, I believe it's the book of Judges. If you look how it uh, starts, let me turn to it really quickly. Um, Judges chapter 1, starting in uh, verse 27. ESV subtitles this section, The Failure to Complete the Conquest. And as a matter of fact, uh, we learn here that they did not actually do what they were commanded to do, that they um, did not drive these people out completely in, in, in many cases, and that ended up being a problem for them, right? These people who remained, uh, these people groups who remained uh, were a thorn in the sides of Israel for basically, you know, the, the rest of their existence. So... And then one other thing. What was the other thing, Chris? <laughs> well, the the, uh, the the assumption is that because Caleb later asks permission to drive out the Anakites yes. from the hill country, that what that means is that there was, but you know, that 
that there had all that there had between those two times remained Anakites in the hill country. In other words, when uh, in Joshua eleven twelve, which he cites, where it says there were no Anakim left in the land, uh, and then Caleb later asks permission to drive out the Anakites from Anakites from the hill country, it's assuming that Joshua can't be speaking literally uh, when it says there were no Anakim left in the land, but. It's actually possible that perhaps they were driven out entirely and later returned, is it not? Uh, no, I mean, that's exactly right. I mean, the fact is, and the scripture is explicit about this, that they were driven out. You know, they weren't literally um, all killed. And so if they were driven away, it's very likely, um, or it's not, I'm sorry, not very likely, but it's very possible that uh, they moved back in at some time. And so that's another way, I mean, that's a very reasonable way to further... Uh, or to try to uh, not synchronize. What's what word I'm looking for? To try reconcile? to harmonize the text, oh, yeah. reconcile or harmonize these texts. Uh, you know, the solution that Copen gives is is one sort of solution. That basically these expressions are just I don't know hyperbolic sort of idioms that were used. Yeah. Well, and and well, just to be fair to Hiram's argument, verse twelve of Joshua eleven does say that Joshua captured all the cities of these kings and all their kings, and he struck them with the edge of the sword and utterly destroyed them. Um, but I don't think that there's any reason to take that to mean that he utterly destroyed every single person. It could be that some of them did escape out of the country, like you said, they were driven out and then later returned. Uh, but but you know, the one last thing I want to add to this is just that it strikes me as interesting that he's trying to argue that uh, I mean, beyond everything that you both of you said, which is absolutely all correct, we've still got. The this thing that what he's trying to say is that the fact that this large group of people was said to be utterly annihilated, so to speak, and yet there were some stragglers that remained. If he's trying to say that that somehow challenges our interpretation of similar utter destruction language when it comes to the final judgment, it would seem to me that what he's trying it would seem to me like what he's trying to argue is what that in the final judgment the vast majority of the wicked will be destroyed, but there will be a few you know uh, a remnant left or something like that. It just strikes me as very. Um, Strained and inconsistent. I don't know. Yeah, or alternatively, that when you know all these grandiose claims about what's going to happen to the unsaved, that in reality it's not going to be as bad because it's like you know here it's like it says that they destroyed them. But really, they didn't. Basically, what um, you know they're arguing here is that when it talks, these things are hyperbolic and they're not as bad as what it actually says. I mean, that's that's how the you know this argument's usually used. It's used. To say that, you know, the Israelites didn't kill as many people to, you know, for the sake of unbelievers who are put off by it. So it's kind of like saying, you know, if anything, what we'd read from this is the judgment of the wicked won't be as bad as it's pictured <laughs> because that's what we're getting from this. Yeah. You know, it's hyperbolic. Yeah. And, and if we're going to say that, then just about everything. And I mean, the eternal prison sentence could be hyperbolic. The, uh, uh, the weeping and gnashing of teeth could be hyperbolic. The wheat and the tares could be hyperbolic. I mean, it, when does this end? It, it seems to me to be, uh, not the direction that he would want to take it. Uh, but let's move on to one last article before I let you guys go, since I've had you for like three hours now or longer. Um, so 30, 8, 39, 30, yeah, over three hours. Uh, this is going to be like a three, three episode <laughs> discussion, which is good for my episode count, but maybe not for people's attention span. Um, there's one You'll more. You'll be able to whittle it down. <laughs> well, a little bit. I, like I said, it might Yeah, ho- hopefully after editing, maybe you could get it to a, a two episode. <laughs> I don't know. We'll see. Um, yeah. But but let's talk about one last article. This one wasn't written by Hiram, but it was written by my friend Mike at, at their the ministry that they both contribute to, Grassroots Apologetics. And it's it's what Michael Burgos titles Three Arguments Against Annihilationism. And at, at risk of offending Mike, and I don't want to if, if he's listening, um, 
I, I kind of retitle this uh, three bad, in parentheses, arguments against annihilationism. And I'm just, I just want to be frank and honest with listeners here. This is a great example of why I've become a conditionalist. I've, I've told you two both privately and I've told other people that the biggest reason, that the biggest contributor to my conversion to conditionalism has been the horribly poor quality of arguments that traditionalists use. And I think that this is actually an example of that. Again, no offense intended. Um, but, but let's talk about it uh, because at least – Two or th- if not all three of these are arguments that I've heard other people use, and yet I find them all to be really horrible. And the first one of these um, is the argument that Mike calls the argument from the preferable state of non-existence. And I'm just going to sort of summarize and then ask you guys what you think. In Mark 14:21, Jesus says that it would have been good for Judas if he had never been born. And and Mike tries to establish that any any amount of time alive in the exist in the image of God. Um, prior to being eternally separated from him is infinitely better than to uh, is infinitely better than to have never been born and uh, than to have never existed at all okay and so therefore annihilationism can't be um, can't be in view because even if they're annihilated and no longer exist uh, they did exist for a little bit in the image of God and so therefore uh, that would not be um, worse than to have never been born. I mean, I, I'm kind of stumbling over it, but that's the the, the gist of it. Uh, you know, Ronnie, let's turn to you first. How how do you you respond to this argument? I there's so much I, w- I want to say here, and I I hope I don't steal anyone's thunder. If you had some great responses, but uh, <laughs> uh, the reason is because I, I was actually going to write a, a a blog response to this, and then I I decided not to. Um, but I, I had thought about it quite a bit. Uh, I mean, the first thing I noticed from the argument is that it's just unbelievably sloppy. You know, Mike is just not careful at all here. And um, I'm surprised that, you know, Hiram, who makes a big deal about, you know, being careful and precise, you know, ostensibly at least, he has insisted that, you know, his blogging partner be a little more careful here. Um, so, so many things. I mean, first of all, and some people might think this is a ridiculous point. I think it has a lot of merit. Not being born is not equivalent to never having existed. Christ says that it would be better had he not been born. He doesn't say that it would be better had he never been conceived. Um, that being the case, I, I think Jesus here is probably referring to something like a stillbirth. And hmm. it, you, th- this is echoing uh, language from Job 3, which, uh, which we'll reference in a little bit. Um, but that actually does make make quite a bit of difference, especially if you're somebody who believes that you know all infants are saved, and I think most traditionalists believe that. Um, but anyway, you know, more to the point, the That's argument point. is yeah. I mean, the argument is is also sloppy because what Michael does here is he conflates uh, what I call objective and subjective senses of a better. Um, and I'll explain what I mean by that by quoting him. He says, "quote." The greater length of his prejudgment existence uh, would be of a greater value to the reprobate, even though his judgment is certain. So here Michael's making a subjective claim. He says that the greater length of the prejudgment existence would be of greater value to the reprobate. So what he means is something along the lines of, you know, in the from the perspective of the reprobate, you know, it, it, in his eyes. It, his prejudgment existence was of greater value than, I guess, his judgment or something like that. Um, this, that's just false, though. And again, let's go ahead and 
look at Job 3. Now, here you have Job. He had a, a full life, right? He was an older gentleman by this point. He had a life that was full of riches, it was prosperity, all these things that you know that Michael mentions in his post that are gifts from God. Mm. And he actually suffers relatively briefly, you know, maybe just a few days or weeks or something like that. And right after, the, and it, it is intense, but it's a brief amount of suffering. Right after that, what does he say? He basically goes on for a chapter saying that I wish I was never born, <laughs> right? right? And he says, I'm quoting him, he says, why did I not die at birth, come out of the womb and expire? And later on he says, or why was I not as a hidden stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? And so as far as a subjective claim goes, this is just false. I mean, there's no reason at all to think that, I don't know, because we enjoy, you know, sun and, and, you know, common grace and so forth, that from the perspective of the reprobate, they would rather, um, you know what I'm getting at. Yeah, that they would rather have existed than to have not existed at all. I mean, that it's plainly false that that's not what the wicked are going to subjectively value to a greater degree. And this is evident from the other common similar argument, and I'll let you get back to your thunder in a second, but it, but it's similar to the uh, another argument that traditionalists often make, which is that... Um, the, the, you know, atheists would love for them to be killed and, and never to live again rather than experience an eternity of being tormented. Well, so which is it? Which is it, traditionalist? Would they prefer to not exist or would they not prefer to not exist? It, it doesn't make any sense. Right, that's right. So that's exactly right. Um, and then what he does, and I think, again, he's just not being careful, then he throws an, an objective comparison into the mix. And he says this, he says, the period of existing in the image of God, unseparated from the presence of God, even if for a moment, is of infinitely greater value than a temporal time of indescribable punishment that results in the cessation of being. So he actually says that this just is right. of infinitely greater value. So this seems to be more of an objective claim. Um, what he's basically trying to say is that, I guess, the goodness of existing in God's image somehow outweighs you know, the badness of of being destroyed because that goodness is infinite, right? While the badness is only finite. Now, even if we grant all that, and by the way, there's no reason that we should because this Absolutely whole not. Lang- it's totally baseless. Yeah, this whole language of infinite, you know, goodness and badness is, is, is completely unsubstantiated by him. But even if we granted all that, Michael doesn't realize that that line of reasoning cuts against everlasting torment. Because at any point, at any given point in eternity future, Judas can say to himself, you know what? I've only been in this flame for X trillion number of years. So it's still better. It's still better that I was conceived and born because that small moment of being alive was of infinite value. That's right. I mean, the, the fact is that everlasting suffering will always be finite suffering. Everlasting suffering is not the same thing as infinite suffering. So this argument he makes cuts against his own view just as well. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, and I don't think that you stole my thunder. I mean, you, you did point out something that it had occurred to me, but let me just add something before turning to you, Joey, if you have any thoughts, which is there are some other points that I think are rather sloppy um, that that kind of might seem like they're pedantic to somebody. But I mean, look, he, he, he says that what Jesus says here is that Jesus says it would have been better to have never been born. Well, no, he doesn't, at least not as far as I can tell. He says it would be good. If he had never been born. Now, some might think that's a pedantic difference, but as soon as you recognize that that's the case, then his entire argue, argument 
falls apart because as far as I can tell, Jesus isn't comparing two things at all. He's not saying it would have been better for him to have never been born than had he been born. He's saying it would have been good for him never to have been born. And most certainly, excuse me, most certainly, uh, to have never been born would have been good, uh, in contrast with rising to judgment, uh, destruction and everlasting contempt. So right off the bat, it, it seems flawed. You know, he also makes this sloppy, um, I think it's sloppy anyway, uh, claim. He says, according to the creator, it would be better for Judas to have never existed than for him to have existed. But let's be, but let's be really clear. Even if we are assuming that he's using the word better, which he doesn't, and even if he's comparing two things, the things that he's comparing aren't non-existence and existence. What he's comparing, if it's non-existence at all, is non-existence and judgment. In other words, the time that he's spent existing really isn't a part of what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about the punishment that will, that will, that will, that he'll face for having betrayed the Son of Man. And to never have existed, I think is far better than to face the judgment of destruction and everlasting contempt. So it just seems to me on multiple levels, not just the ones you pointed out, but the ones I pointed out as well, this argument is just really bad. It's not, it, it, I, I just don't see any merit to it at all. And this is ex- exactly the kind of argument that has turned me into a conditionalist. Uh, Joey, do you have anything to add on this before we move on to the second one? Uh, see, we we leave the scraps for Joey here. We got all the good points. <laughs> I'll give him, I'll give him first 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 time at the table on the second argument. But go ahead. Well, this one is just there's there's been so many things you know said of it, and you guys, you know everything you guys have said is totally right. It's just, I mean, this argument basically takes one of the worst you know arguments for you know traditionalism, the idea that it would be better for Judas you know not to have been born because you know even if we're saying that you know all we the thing is I always made the point that all you have to say is whatever Judas suffers you know in judgment is worse than all the joy he had living, which is totally true. I mean, just so much, basically he's just making a completely baseless claim that, well, that's not true because by having been alive in God's image, you know, that's of infinite value. Like what? That's, that's, it's just patently absurd because there's no, there's no basis for that argument. And even if there were, I mean, it's kind of the same what you were saying as well, Ronnie, but it's like, if that's the case, then, you know, how much torment would it take to, you know, outstrip the value there? Like, if one moment is of infinite value in God's image in his presence, then how many, then, you know, why does it take an infinite number of moments outside of his presence, as opposed to, say, the same number of moments? And, yeah, I just, as a general point, it's, you know, I think he sees what the general weakness is and how a traditionalist would, I mean, sorry, how an annihilationist would normally, you know, res, uh, sorry, respond because, you know, the normal response is that doesn't prove eternal torment. It just proves, you know, he suffered worse than the joy of his life, which isn't hard to do, you know. Maybe just the terror of seeing God at judgment could account for that. But I think he sees that, is trying to make a case for why that's not the case, but he doesn't. Like, yeah. just because you say something doesn't mean it's good. That's yeah. all I can really say there. Well, yeah, and just two last thoughts to share. Uh, I'm glad that you brought out the subjective goodness versus objective goodness thing, Ronnie, because uh, he tries to he tries to argue from both perspectives um, when he talks about being of greater value to the reprobate. But, I mean, just a plain look at the text, I think it's pretty clear that Jesus isn't talking about some objective mathematical formula that determines how good somebody's existence or life is. I mean, it's pretty clear, I think, that he's talking about from the perspective of Judas, would it have been better that he had been not born? Born. So I do think that it's a subjective issue at hand, not a 
not an objective one, because what does it matter to the wicked if they lived a, a nice life for a while? At the prospect of facing judgment and destruction, I think they would much prefer to have never been born, and Job makes that clear. Um, I think there was something else, but I have forgotten it now. Just, uh, but, 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 but one last point I do want to make is that as soon as we do want to turn to subjective uh, value, what, what the wicked think is, is uh, I mean, I, I, this is a little off topic, but like I said a moment ago, uh, it's been argued that the wicked would love to be annihilated. And the thing that I keep coming back with is why does what the wicked would prefer, um, why is that a determination, determining factor in, in what the truth is? I mean, these are the, the people who make that very argument are the ones who say, well, uh, you know, you, you conditionalists don't like the idea of hell, so what, but what you like doesn't matter, <laughs> you know? So anyway, it's just tremendously inconsistent. A- any last thoughts before we move on to the second one from either of you? Yeah, I have one last okay. thing, and you can have the last word on that one. <laughs> We're kind of beating the uh, the dead horse here, but I mean, this argument is just so contrived. I mean, can you imagine, uh, you know, the original uh, the original audience of this going through this, you know, contrived line of reasoning? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, you know, he, he says it would be better if he if he was never born, and and that must mean that he that he never existed, uh, but. Uh, how could that be better than uh, undergoing a you know a harsh punishment and being killed well you know, you know being made in the image of god that's of infinite value and you know the only way that you could get worse than that or you know the only thing that could outweigh that is if 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 you're tormented for a, a infinite amount of time it's just so contrived like who would ever come up with that yeah and uh, hey I'm all for, you know, original and creative arguments. You know, my, my background is philosophy and we do that a lot, maybe just for fun. But there comes, there comes a point when you're trying to draw an argument from a text where you say, you know what? I don't think so. That's just a little bit too contrived for me. So. I, I agree. I lied. I do want to take the last word. Um, because, because there is one last thought that occurs to me, which is, let, let's say somebody took a slightly different attack to this argument and said that let, let's ignore the life in between. In fact, Matt Slick did this when I called him once uh, to talk about annihilationism. He said, if state A is the non-existence prior to birth and state B is the non-existence after being destroyed, um, and I always want to be clear that when I say non-existence, I don't mean it qu- quite the same thing that conditional or that traditionalists think I'm, I'm, I mean by that phrase. But anyway, if, if state A and state B are identical, then how could the, how could it be better for Judas to have never been born than to be destroyed and not exist forevermore? And, and in response to that, which I think is a fair question, uh, I, I think it neglects what the biblical, uh, audience, how it, what the, the value that they placed on legacy, on, Honor or shame uh, that that follows their their death. I mean, um, Glenn Peoples, I think, uh, cited something that maybe one of you will recall. But before before you mention it, you know about about Hitler and, and the shame that followed his death. The, the point is that the biblical and the b- biblical time period, and I think even today, people cared a lot about their legacy. And I think that any biblical uh, that any person in biblical times, if faced with the prospect of never existing. Or existing and then not existing again, leaving behind an eternity of shame, a, a, a legacy of shame forever. I do think that that would be enough to qualify it as being worse than to have never been born. Um, you guys have any thoughts on that? Well, I say that much in the Bible teaches annihilationism, so I definitely agree with you. <laughs> okay. All right. Do, do either of you remember the quote that Glenn Peoples, I think, made in his Work where he quotes, uh, where he find, does a search on Google or something and finds people saying that the only thing that remains after Hitler is his shame. 
Yeah, it, it wasn't about Hitler. It was about oh. some politician. Uh, I'm guessing in New Zealand. And yeah, the quote is something along the lines of, you know, even after he's gone, only a shame will remain. Uh, and that was in reference to uh, uh, the, the past. Everlasting man contempt, himself. right? Yeah. So. Well, but still, I think it illustrates that we care about how we're remembered. And if we could choose between never having been born and being born, dying, and leaving behind a legacy of shame, I think we all know which we'd prefer. Now, moving on to the second one, and I'll give Joey first crack at this. The second, what I call bad, arguments against annihilationism is the argument from the perfect justice of the Lord. Um, now, he basically argues that if the end result of annihilation is identical for all unsaved sinners, then justice has not been issued since the most wicked of the human race is treated identically to the, quote, common sinner. Now, I want to come back on that in a moment, but Joey, why don't you have first stab at this? What, what is your response to this argument? All right, well, the first thing, you know, is, I mean, he, he's right to an extent, not in his overall point, but it's, in you know, lar- at least largely from the eternal perspective, yeah, it's the same, but... The thing of it is, when he speaks of the perfect justice, he's speaking of the perfect justice from Michael Burgos's perspective. Mm. You know, the idea that you know this this pops up from time to time that you know in order that in order for God to distinguish between the much worse and the not nearly as bad sinners, there has to be this eternal difference between them. That you know, some tribesmen in Africa who uh, I don't know never really did anything all that bad, but never accepted Jesus. You know, that he's going to be treated way less harshly than Hitler. But the thing is, the Bible itself, first off, we do acknowledge that there is some distinction between how they're treated to some extent. Most of us annihilationists do. I think the three of us are at least in agreement in that there is some finite uh, degrees of punishment. But, you know, he does come to the point that ultimately the result's the same, and how is that just? Well, I would just say, you know, let's go to the Bible. Mm. Which he doesn't do much in this section because, you know, the Bible says things like, and let me try to pull up some specific verses, uh, you know, and, and after the flood, God says to Noah that the human heart, you know, is full of every evil intention and, you know, and it's full of evil. And he's saying this to Noah, who's, you know, like the most righteous person around. Mm. You know, you have Jeremiah 17.9, which says the heart is deceitfully, you know, beyond comprehension and it's, woefully wicked or something like that. We have, you know, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None seek after God. You know, all these passages that are clearly saying that all men, you know, their hearts are full of evil. It's, you know, there's to say common sinner like that, it's like we all are full of evil. And, yes. Yeah, and from a practical standpoint, you know, we like to think, oh, we'd never do the things that evil people did. But, you know, look at Nazi Germany. You know, how many you know, normal, good Germans who weren't all that bad had no trouble siding with Hitler, you know. Uh, you know, you go to a soccer match. This one I just added to the thing the other day. <laughs> it's like, you think about, you know, we like to laugh about, oh, you know, people in other countries are crazy about soccer. Just think about it. These normal, good, hardworking people, if their team loses a soccer match or wins, they murder people. Like, yeah. Just because they're whipped up in a frenzy by other people, it doesn't take that much to get seemingly good people to do evil things. You know, what really is it that distinguishes, you know, a mass murderer from just a normal sinner? Like, I would say a lot of that probably does have to do with circumstance. That's, you know, that's why we have stories like Lord of the Flies and The Lottery (laughs) by Shirley Jackson. Like, we realize now more and more that there's not this you know, goodness in some people and evil in others. Like, there's, we all have that capability of evil. We're yeah. all real, you know, 
like the Bible explicitly says, men's hearts are full of evil. So to say that there must be this huge distinction between sinners, it sounds good to us, but I don't think that the Bible necessarily says the same thing. Yeah, I agree. I mean, a friend of mine has often said, and I think it's true, in 24 hours, we could be just as bad as anybody else that we know, given the right circumstances. We're all, I was taken aback that somebody like Michael Burgos would actually even use the phrase, common sinner. We're, we're evil, and, and, and let's, let's put aside how evil we are, let's look at what violation of the law requires. Doesn't it, the Bible say that if one sins even once, they're guilty of having violated the whole law? Um, so the, I understand that there is to one extent or another, uh, a difference in punishment required for some sins and others, but we're guilty of the whole law. We're all utterly evil. No one does good. And, um, and the, the thing that I want to come back to is how surprising I, 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 how surprised I am whenever I hear this, because these are the very people that says that the most finite of sins against an infinitely holy God is an infinite offense. So as soon as, as soon as one person's small sin is an infinite offense, how different is that from another person's large sin? It's an infinite offense. So I mean, I, I, I don't even, ever since I've become a conditionalist, I, I can't even wrap my head around what seems to me to be a pretty big inconsistency. I mean, Ronnie, do you want to add anything? Uh, nothing original. I mean, I'll just reiterate what you both have noticed. And, you know, it's interesting. Most, you know, ardent defenders of traditionalism are, you know, Calvinistic, or they seem to come from, from that school of thought. And it's interesting, right? Because Calvinists traditionally are the ones that really, uh, I guess, cast sin in, in the harshest light, if we could put it that way. I, I'm sure you both understand what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, yeah. Just, just read. You know, just read the Puritans, for instance. And you'll know exactly what I'm getting at. And then, for whatever reason, right, when it comes to this argument, they try to somehow minimize sin, which they would never do in any other context. Yeah. Um, in that one debate um, with the three-on-three debate, which maybe some of the listeners are familiar with, um, you know, Gene Cook, he makes the exact same argument. And it's just amazing the language he uses. He says, well, you know, on your view, you know, Hitler, I don't know if he uses Hitler specifically, but, you know, some really bad person will suffer you know, the same punishment as your sweet, uh, you know, Roman Catholic grandmother next door who you know, really hasn't done anything that bad. That's the sort of language he uses. I'm, I'm thinking, whether or not that's true, that's just completely inconsistent, I know, with what you normal, you know, with the way you normally talk about sin and how terrible it is. And like you say, I mean, you think stealing a pack of gum merits infinite torment, you know? And then now, now you're talking about people being, uh, relatively good. Right. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and other people are just really, really bad. And again, you know, what Joseph said, you know, yeah, the question is, what does scripture teach is the proper punishment for sin? The question is not what does Michael Burgos think is the proper punishment for sin. Yeah, I, I agree. And there are just last, two last things I want to add. First of all, and this again might seem to people to be a little bit uh, pedantic, but um, let, let's assume for a moment that our position is is correct. The, the worst sinner imaginable, let's just take Hitler, for example, although I'm sure there have been worse, uh, when, you know, he's going to suffer this very painful process of destruction, and then uh, let's take the sweet Catholic grandma next door, she'll suffer a, by, you know, um, by comparison, a much less uh, painful destruction. When the destructive process is over, they both are not conscious of anything anymore, they're gone, Okay. Uh, their awareness of an eternity of never existing 
is never going to enter into their mind. They're going to each, the last thing that either of them will ever experience is a destructive process, one of which is far more painful than the other. Uh, so I do think that um, even though the end result is the same, uh, the last thing that they experience is going to be considerably different, at least perhaps. And so I do think that that's enough to qualify one punishment as being utterly more devastating than that of another. Maybe you guys don't agree. That's okay. I'm right and you're wrong. Uh, but <laughs> the other thing that I want to point out, and this, this really bugs me. I love Mike. Um, I, again, I hope that he considers me my friend after everything that has happened. I do appreciate his ministry. But when he says the annihilationist canard regarding Matthew 25, 46, insists that that which is eternal punishment is that punishment which produces an eternal effect. I'm really offended by that, to, for him to call it a canard. Um, none of the people that we've discussed this with have come up with any reason why uh, our interpretation of Matthew 25, 46 isn't, um, isn't viable considering how eternal is attached with nouns of actions throughout the rest of the, throughout the rest of the scripture. And then we have people like Augustine and Jonathan Edwards and others who recognize that a death which lasts forever is in fact an eternal punishment. I mean, there just is no good reason for claiming that our interpretation of Matthew 25, 46 is simply a canard. And then on top of that, he says that what we're saying is that that which is eternal punishment is a punishment which produces an eternal effect, but that's not true. The punishment is the effect. In our view, just as much as the eternal salvation is not a salvation that produces an eternal effect, the salvation is the effect of the saving work. So, you know, if we want to talk about precision, if we want to talk about properly representing each other's views, then I think that he should probably in, uh, uh, represent our view correctly. Um, anyway, I just took some issue with that. Any last thoughts before we move on to the last argument that he makes? I'm glad you brought up that point about Matthew 25, just because it's very important. That's all. Yeah, I mean, look, if people want to look up what eternal, eternal salvation, eternal redemption, um, what those mean. If people want to do the research into what eternal means when it's attached to a noun of an intran, of a transitive verb, um, they're going to find something pretty surprising. I have come to believe now that the onus is on the traditionalist to explain why we should understand Matthew twenty five forty six differently from the rest of the scripture when it uses eternal and nouns of action. Um, so I pose that challenge to them. Yeah, and one last thing, and this will, you know, echo some of the comments I made earlier. Uh, you know, a number of of traditionalists, and and you mentioned some of them, Chris, um, Jonathan Edwards, Augustine, they concede the point. Um, uh, Augustine at least implicitly concedes the point that a destruction that lasts forever, or as what some people would call an annihilation, is an everlasting punishment, and. If anyone wants a more contemporary person, here's a quote by John Blanchard in a book about, you know, you know, defending the traditional view of hell called Whatever Happened to Hell. It's often quoted. He says, if it would be wrong of God to punish finite sin with everlasting punishment, how can it be right for him to punish it by annihilation, which by definition is itself everlasting? <laughs> And so here's yet another traditionalist conceding the point that everlasting destruction, everlasting death, and by that, you know, what we mean by death is, by definition, an everlasting punishment. Now, again, to repeat myself for the third time, just because Blanchard, Edwards, and Augustine can see the point, that doesn't mean it's true. But, but, maybe it should give certain, um, traditionalist pause before saying that that argument is a canard. Yeah. Right? Or before trying to just wave it off as if it's ridiculous. And one more thing, if I might, about this issue of justice. 
I do find it fascinating that traditionalists have admitted openly, and you could actually see this in my debate with her defend, that on their view, justice will never be satisfied. Jonathan Edwards is someone who, again, just openly states this unabashedly. Um, and not only that, on their view, justice will never even be close to be satisfied. Mm. Uh, a trillion years could pass of the most intense and horrible suffering you can imagine. And that will literally be an infinitesimal, infinitesimal amount of, of justice meted out of what's actually required of them. Conditionalists, on the other hand, actually believe that a just God created a universe in which justice will be satisfied completely. There will come a day when the scales of justice will completely and in every real way actually be satisfied. I remember Turretin Fan, when I asked him this question, he said, well, it won't be fully satisfied ever, but it will be satisfied in the sense that uh, the judgment will be passed. I believe those were his words. Mm. But that's not a satisfaction of justice. You know, if a murderer is on trial and, <laughs> and, you know, the judge pronounces that he's guilty and then he escapes, well, no one would say that justice has been satisfied because, you know, the judgment was pronounced or the judgment was passed. No, the actual punishment has to be fulfilled. And on the, again, on the traditionalist view, the punishment will never ever be fulfilled. People will be fulfilling, I guess, what they owe forever. But again, the scales of justice on traditionalism will never actually be balanced. You'll have a cosmic dualism forever. Yeah, and just to add to that, something that just struck me is, um, you know, and at risk of being a little uh, controversial, perhaps, um, it's not just that in in, in our view – uh, the scales of justice, you know, can properly be balanced and, and that the perfect justice of the Lord will in fact, uh, come about. It's that in the, it's in the traditional view, God can't, uh, bring about perfect justice because, uh, in fact, in, in some of these cases that have been made, the argument has been, been made that it would be unjust, uh, for God to bring this kind of justice about. And, and the reason why I think that's kind of, um, ironic is because uh, Hiram and Mike are both, like myself, reformed. Uh, all three of us, I think, are to one extent or another fans of Dr. James White. And Dr. James White has has been well known for um, uh, caricaturizing Molinism as a god who's uh, who, who has to uh, play with the hand he's dealt. Um, a god whose sort of hands are behind his, tied behind his back and, and, and he just has to, you know, he's limited in, in what he can accomplish. That seems to me to be quite similar in traditionalism with respect to bringing about perfect justice. He, because, uh, the, the wicked must exist eternally and suffer eternally for the crime, God is unable to bring about, uh, perfect justice. I, I think that's telling. Just, just to be clear, let, let me, let me sort of give a disclaimer. I recognize, of course, that God cannot act contrary to His nature. Um, and if this is, if the Bible, in fact, did teach that the wicked must exist, you know, in a state of suffering forever in order to, in order for God to be just in meeting out punishment, then, you know, of course I would accept that. Uh, but, but like I said, I, I do think it is interesting that our view is one in which God is capable of bringing about perfect justice, whereas in uh, traditionalism, um, God is not. Granted, it's something that is acting according to his nature, but nevertheless, it, it is interesting to me. 
Moving on, the, the third argument in Mike's article, Three Arguments Against Annihilationism, um, he calls the argument from the holiness of God. And basically, the, the first half of this argument is uh, an attempt to defend the oft-repeated claim that uh, a sin against an infinitely holy God uh, is... Uh, requires infinite punishment. In, in fact, he simply says it is because God is infinitely holy, a single sin committed against him is an infinitely heinous crime. Now, of course, that's not justified here. It's simply stated. But he does kind of sneak in a second argument, kind of, in this in this section that I want to talk about briefly. But before before I do, did you guys have any thoughts on this infinite, you know, infinite sin requiring infinite punishment kind of a thing? So let's turn to you, Ronnie, first. Yeah, I have a, a few things to say about it. And you're right. He... He sneaks in a, a fourth argument here, the argument from Revelation uh, 14.11, which he mistakenly cites as Revelation 14.1. Uh, now, that last argument actually, it's, it's not as bad, I would say, as the other ones, because at least it's an attempt to argue from the text. Mm. Uh, you, you know, we'll, we'll talk about how persuasive we think it is, but as far as the first half of this last argument uh, man, there's, there's just so much to say. Um, as you, I think, alluded to, his main claim is a complete non sequitur. Um, he says, it is because God is infinitely holy, a single sin committed against him is an infinite heinous crime. Well, that just doesn't follow at all. Uh, not only that, since earlier we were on the subject of equivocation, there's a complete equivocation here with the term infinitely. And that's actually one of the many reasons I think the whole infinite sins argument is a really bad one. Mm. But when he says infinitely holy, what he probably means, what most traditionalists probably mean, is something like perfectly holy. Mm. You know, infinitely holy, strictly speaking, doesn't really make much sense. It would be like saying infinitely round or infinitely <laughs> white or something like that. Yes, God is perfectly holy, but it doesn't make sense to say he's infinitely holy. And then the second part about how that warrants an, or how it is an infinitely heinous crime. Uh, again, I mean, maybe it's extremely heinous or maximally heinous, but what does it even mean to say it's infinitely heinous? And then, the, you know, the very end of the argument is, well, therefore it warrants an infinite punishment. And we know what he means by infinite there, one that lasts, I guess, infinitely long mm-hmm. or something like that. So those are just a few, you know, summary, I guess, critiques. And there's a lot more that could, could be said about this, but let's let, uh, Joey have, a word. Yeah, Joey, before I get in the last word on this fourth argument he sneaks in, do you have any thoughts? Like a couple things. I mean, first of all, he kind of gives away his, uh, you know, not, not gives away his position, but I think all, you can find all that needs to be said in the last couple sentences where, um, he, you know, he's speaking of the eternal punishment and so forth, and he says, you know, quote, compare this language with the finitude of annihilation. Right. The sufferings of those annihilated ceases. Their punishment stops for those annihilated are no more. I mean, obviously we don't grant that premise to begin with because we say annihilation is eternal punishment right. and uh, make a darn good case for it too. So, I mean, that's, that's not the biggest thing there. It's, you know, we ultimately do believe in at least what amounts to an, an eternal punishment, you know, the complete and utter destruction of the person to which they'll never, you know, rise again. It's, if that's what the Bible says the punishment for disobeying God is, then that certainly doesn't bother me at all that that would be, you know, destroying a person with the full dignity of someone made in God's image. That seems to me like if that is what the Bible says is the punishment for sin, then that certainly seems, you know, to be proper. 
especially since some traditionalists, I'm assuming not like Michael Burgos, actually say that because human beings are so important and special, we can't be destroyed. So to say that we are might actually amount to a greater punishment than eternal torment by certain standards. And, and one last quick point about about the uh, first half of the argument. At one point, Michael says this. He says, hence, a singular sin is an act of treason, uh, an act of rebellion against an infinitely holy God of whom humanity is obligated to honor and obey. It is because God is infinitely holy, a single sin committed against him is an infinitely heinous crime. So here he's saying that every sin, every and any sin committed against God is infinitely heinous. But wait a minute, wasn't one of the major premises and I think it was his first or second argument, you know, the one about the justice of God is that mm. there's you know, these a wide variation in guilt and sin and therefore if annihilationism is true, God is unjust. How does that fit here with every single sin apparently being equal, right? What he says here basically says that every single sin is infinitely heinous, right? which if every sin is infinitely heinous, every sin is equally heinous. So I, I thought that was a bit of an inconsistency there. Oh, yeah, I agree. Absolutely. It, it, like I said, I, I think that, um, I think that many traditional, traditionalists, and I think that this is the case with Mike. Forgive me, Mike, if you're listening and, and you're hurt by this, but I think it's true. I think that many traditionalists, including, uh, this article, make arguments without intending to actually examine the true, you know, the, the Bible to see what it says, but instead in a, in a desperate attempt to defend a tradition. And I think that anytime we make such attempts, to defend a tradition rather than look at what the Bible says, I think we inevitably fall into inconsistency, which is, I think, exactly what happened here within the confines of a single post. So I, I absolutely agree. Uh, but I do want to sort of comment on this fourth uh, argument that he sneaks in from, from Revelation 14, because there were several things that, uh, just from this little section alone, that I think were pretty problematic. I mean, first, the book of Revelation is incredibly symbolic, and he's treating it as though John is literally seeing what's going to happen in the future, kind of like looking through a crystal ball into the future or something. But no, we're dealing with symbols here. Second, he's neglecting that the very that the passage uh, here in Revelation 14 appeals to Isaiah 34, where the smoke of Edom's destruction rises forever and ever. So what does the imagery of smoke rising forever and ever communicate? Complete utter destruction. And then third, he writes that in, annihilation, in annihilationism, the wicked, quote, do possess a sense of rest that is in direct contradiction to the fiery torment of which the scriptures speak, unquote. Now, you know, again, I mean, if, if we're going to take this literally, which, again, I don't think is proper, this is actually very obviously false. If, if annihilationism is true, then the wicked will never possess a sense of anything, let alone rest. For the moment they die, body and soul, they will experience nothing at all, forever. So to claim that we, that our view actually does result in a kind of rest, that this passage says they'll never experience, um, I, I think is just patently false. Um, so anyway, I mean, that, that's those were my thoughts. Anything else before we move on to our closing thoughts? Okay. Um, well, let's talk about our closing thoughts then, and let's turn to you first, Ronnie. Um, you know, we've talked for an awful lot, uh, an awful long time. Um, what most would you like the listeners uh, to to leave with, having listened to our conversation today? Well, there's a few things. First of all, and I, I wanted to say this earlier, I don't think I had a chance to. I want to address this point about proof texting. Now, Hiram, in I believe two of his articles, uh, makes the accusation that 
annihilationism is basically a proof text based uh, position. Mm. And by that, what he apparently means is that what we do is basically just grab isolated, you know, verses out of context. You know, don't do the hard work of actually you know, doing real interpretation. And we just kind of throw them out there and say, see, our case is true. Now, I'm sure there are some cases where people do just throw out text without much interpretation. I mean, in my uh, opening statement, for instance, in my debate, I listed, I mean, a number of verses. But, I mean, that was because, first of all, I had 20 minutes to make a very long case. And so I didn't have the time to go into all of these passages, uh, you know, to go in, in depth. That's what the cross-examination and, and rebuttal periods were for. Mm. Um, that and the fact that, and this is just a fact about you interpreting any piece of writing, some statements require more interpretation than others. You know, very straightforward statements uh, require relatively little interpretive work. Something like, you know, Revelation 14.11, on the other hand, which is full of symbolism, full of imagery, I mean, that requires a lot more work and a lot more exegesis. Now, the interesting thing, and this is the point I want to make, is that uh, it's actually the other way around. What you usually see when people make a case for traditionalism is that it's a proof text-based case. Yeah. What they do is they find passages that use expressions like, you know, worms that don't die, or passages that use expressions like unquenchable fire, everlasting punishment, and they'll just quote them, and they've, they think that they've made their case completely out of context, completely ignoring genre in the case of the two passages in Revelation. Uh, you know, they'll quote the rich man and Lazarus, <laughs> completely take it out of context, out of historical context, context, forgetting the fact that it's a parable, all this. If you look at some of the major works of conditionalism, Leroy Froome's, I believe it's, you know, over 2,000 pages, Edward Fudge's work, you know, what is that, 400 pages or so, uh, David Powis's work, probably 400 pages, uh, and even our, our good friend Joseph Deere here. Joey, how, how many pages is your <laughs> tome? How many has it reached? Uh, 487. 487. Or listen to Dr. Glenn Peoples, uh, you know, listen to his three-part podcast on this issue. I know all of us here are indebted to him when it comes to this issue. Uh, one of the points he makes at the end of his presentation of annihilationism, the first podcast, is that conditionalism or annihilationism is a case that is based on themes, themes that run throughout scripture as opposed to isolated texts. Uh, and each of these themes incorporates a number of passages, and they're all in context, and they're all exegeted properly. Now, I'm sorry, there's no way you could read any of these and honestly conclude that conditionalism is a proof text-based position. That's just false. Um, and I encourage anyone to, first of all, go online and just look at popular defenses of traditionalism, and you'll see that it is a proof text-based case. But, not, I mean, more than that, you could look at what a lot of the top traditionalist scholars say about a number of passages. I mean, how many, how often have you seen someone go into an exegesis of the everlasting contempt passage mm. in Daniel? 
They never do. They just quote it and they think that their job is done. They'll right. quote Revelation 20.10 and they'll think that their job is done. Um, so that was my long point there about proof texting. And then finally, you know, I actually welcome these, you know, articles, these sort of articles that we've been reading here. I think that most, you know, truth seeking, uh, people who are interested in what scripture actually teaches will be able to see right through, uh, a lot of the arguments that are being made. They'll, uh, I think, easily recognize that the, how contrived some of these arguments are. Um, in his post debate reflections, uh, that Hiram posted on his blog, he said something along the lines of that, you know, even though he doesn't think he performed well, that God is sovereign and he'll use, you know, that debate for his purposes. Mm. And I, I totally agree. I completely agree, Hiram. That's exactly right. I, I think God will use that debate and my debate and these articles that make poor arguments against conditionalism and God will use all of that to bring more people to the truth of conditionalism which by the way they're already doing in droves yeah yeah I agree how about you Joy do you have any final thoughts yeah um, I think one thing that I think is just important to emphasize here is that in this whole you know these you know couple hours of discussion you've all been hearing uh, everyone out there listening you know we're not just, you know, at no point were we making the argument that eternal torment's not true because, you know, it's too awful or that God's too loving or anything like that. I mean, we're, you know, we're arguing from the scriptures. You know, I, granted, uh, you know, Chris and, uh, Ronnie made a couple, you know, interesting philosophical points and I thought they were definitely worth considering. But even then, as Chris noted, the scripture takes precedence over all of it because, well, we all believe the scripture is the word of God. And what do we know about God? He's God. We're creation. Even our highest thinking doesn't compare to his. You know, it's even says in the Bible, in Isaiah 55, you know, that, uh, his thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways. They're infinitely higher as the heavens are higher than the earth. So I think the best thing I could say is to actually just quote Francis Chan and, uh, Preston Sprinkle here in their book Erasing Hell, which is actually about, you know, proving the traditional, uh, doctrine. In it they write, don't believe something just because you want to, and don't embrace an idea just because you've always believed it. Believe what is biblical. Test all assumptions against the precious words that God gave us in the Bible. And I think that says all that really needs to be said. I think it does too, but I do want to add a couple of my own thoughts, <laughs> even though that was enough. Um, first, I just want to say um, to everybody listening that uh, these kinds of arguments that we're responding to like I said uh, earlier on, are the very reasons, the, the primary and, and foremost reasons why I be, have become a conditionalist. If the traditional doctrine is true, um, we need to be doing more than simply uh, grasping at straws to try to find ways to defend um, the, the doctrine of eternal torment. We've got to look at what the scripture says and not on allegedly logical uh, uh, 
uh, logical syllogisms from um, which are based on tenuous premises like you know uh, a, a single sin committed against him is an infinitely heinous crime. We need we need to be doing and looking at what the text actually says about what's going to happen to the wicked because if we don't and if we simply look at uh, if we simply make these bad arguments and they are bad then what we're going to do is we're going to be as ronnie pointed out causing people to turn to conditionalism in droves um you know uh james white has often said on his podcast his podcast that uh calvary chapel as you know um as incredibly anti-Calvinism as they are, are actually uh, churning out uh, Calvinists. Well, I think arguments like these um, are doing the same thing for conditionalism. They're churning out conditionalists. Uh, so my encouragement to those of you listening would be to, if you think that the doctrine of eternal torment is biblical, um, then discuss what the scriptures actually say is going to happen to the wicked. Exegete the scriptures uh, and stop making really bad arguments because you're just going to make more people like me. And I know that you don't want people like me, not because I'm right, but because you don't want uh, somebody to believe in what you consider to be a heresy or at least something that's very heterodox. And so out of, if nothing else, compassion for people like me, make good arguments, not really bad ones that aren't based on anything the scriptures have to say. So that's, that's what I'll leave it with. Um, I want to thank you both for your time. Um, you know, again, if you're listening, check out Ronnie's blog at conditionalism.net forward slash blog and, um, check out Joey's, uh, Joey's online presence at three dash ringbinder dot, uh, dot weebly.com. Read his book. Uh, you know, and then check out the many other resources that have met, been mentioned. So anyway, I, I, just, I want to thank you both for being here. Th- thanks so much, Ronnie, for the, for the time you've taken out tonight. Anytime. Thanks, Chris. And thank you, Joey. I really appreciate uh, uh, your being here and, and being such a help to me. My pleasure. Okay, there you have it. I hope you enjoyed the discussion. And if you have any thoughts, feel free to share them on my Facebook page or email me at uh, theapologetics at hotmail.com. I hope you'll join me for other topics on the next episode of the podcast. Until then. Thank you.